Welcome to Studio Two. Hello, everybody. I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. And I'm Cherry Gregg. We had a big law week this week. I mean, with the Supreme it's Court law oral week. arguments. It's yeah. it law week. And today we're talking about parental liability and gun ownership, Avi. You probably heard everybody. Jennifer Crumbly has been convicted of manslaughter for a mass shooting committed by her 15-year-old son who killed four of his classmates and injured seven others. It's the first time a parent has been held criminally liable for a mass shooting carried out by their child. We're speaking with Echo Yanka, a professor of law at the University of Michigan and Pennsylvania State Representative Darisha Parker today. And we want to hear from you. Do you think parents should be held criminally liable for actions performed by their child? Is this a slippery slope? Email us, studio2 at whyy.org or call 888-477-9499. A conversation rich with questions and possibilities. And... Avi, we're also going to be talking about some new music today. Yes, end of the show, we're going to get to some music, kind of like a palate cleanser at the end of the week. We are going to talk with uh, Amir Richardson, mm. a.k.a. The Bull Bay. We've had I him on the Amir. show before. We love Amir. Uh, he's always got his ear to the ground mm-hmm. when it comes to new music, and he's going to share some with us. There are going to be some names that you know, some you definitely mm-hmm. don't know. And you need to know. really in the scene. <laughs> so uh, we're going to talk to Amir, end of the show today. You can call for that segment, too, I think. Yeah, I think so. 888-477-9499, studio2 at org. Tell us what you're listening to. Um, but first, some headlines. And yeah. we're going to talk quickly about something that's been top of the news for about the last 24 hours now, a really troubling case mm-hmm. out of Lansdowne, Delaware County. Six people unaccounted for after a shooting followed by a house fire. What we know, officers responded to a report of an 11-year-old shot around 3.45 p.m. at this house. There was an exchange of gunfire when officers arrived. Two officers injured in the shooting. They're expected to be okay. Then, according to the DA, a person inside the home started a fire about 15 minutes after officers arrived. Six people, including children, still unaccounted for. It's been difficult for them at this point to go in and try Mm -hmm. to further the rescue or the investigation because of the conditions of the house. So more to come there, but already a tragedy. Yeah, this has been a national story. I saw it on uh, different programs all day, all morning. uh, And this investigation is ongoing. A lot of law this week. I mentioned that, Avi, as we move on to more law. our next story. Another important legal case wrapped up. Closing arguments in D.C. yesterday. Remember University of Pennsylvania climate scientist Michael Mann? How could I forget? How He's could, been on studio, too. I know. Well, uh, he is suing a right-wing author and a policy analyst for defamation. And now that case is in the hands of a jury as we wait for a verdict. Let me explain the case, the facts. Michael Mann was attacked by conservative outlets and climate deniers after he published the famous hockey stick graph. We talked about that. That showed how temperatures in the northern hemisphere, Avi, changed little over 900 years and then Shut shot up in the 20th century with our increased use of oil and coal. Well, back in 2012, the, all the attacks led to an investigation of man's work. He was at Penn State at the time. While no misconduct was found, this conservative media outlet and a right-leaning research group, they published commentary comparing man to Jerry Sandusky. And if you remember, Jerry Sandusky was a one-time Penn State coach convicted of sexually assaulting multiple children. So man, he sued the writers and the publishers for libel and slander. 
And now finally, the case is being tried in the District of Columbia Superior Court. Rare case, right? Because he's yeah. a public figure. Very difficult mm-hmm. to prove defamation mm-hmm. when it you're is. a public high figure. High bar. High Very bar. high bar to clear. However, it's an interesting case, right? Because we're still in an era where scientists are being attacked for mm-hmm. their work, sometimes maliciously and falsely. I'm thinking, of course, of a COVID denialism, yes, COVID yes, conspiracy yes. theories. Mm-hmm. If man's successful... This is a precedent. That could set precedent for Mm -hmm. other cases. Uh, It's also interesting to me, Cherry, when we had Michael Mann on the show recently, he was talking about how at this point, 12 years after all of this happened, that he's as worried about people who are climate alarmists Mm -hmm. as he is about people like Mm -hmm. this who are climate deniers. So it's interesting to look about, so see how much the shift, Mm -hmm. the, the landscape around this particular form of science has shifted over the decade plus. But of course, there are still climate deniers and this could be relevant for them moving forward. Yeah, and and 12 years. I can't believe he took so long to get to this point. And And he was was dogged with it and now we shall see what the the court, what the jury holds. We shall also see some Mm -hmm. new lights. Yay! Lighting up Boathouse Row. This is really, this makes my heart sing a little Mm -hmm. bit. You all know Boathouse Row, right around along the school coal in Philadelphia. It's been lit up for years since mm-hmm. about 1979, I think. But the lights have been off since last March. Yeah. Because they were rehabbing well, well. the lights and sort of putting in new lights and making them more resistant to inclement weather. And we now have word that the lights will be on again starting March 7th, about a month from now. So Boathouse Row lit up. Yet again, in about a month, I am looking forward to that. I am. And that is pretty cool because March 7th, it will be a community event. So you can, if it's nice weather, you can bring your chairs and blankets to witness this lightning ceremony. So it could be a good opportunity. Light, lightning ceremony. A lightning ceremony. Light, lightning yeah. ceremony. Lightning. Yeah, because they're light. They're going to be, li- yeah, lightning. If there's ceremony. lightning, there will be Hopefully, no ceremony. No, yeah. yes. And Philadelphians, they can also, um, you know, you know, book the space, right? And do special events there So and have shows. So it's pretty cool. And I walk along. I like to walk along that area. So I'm, I'm really happy about this coming back. It's an iconic part of the city. Glad to have it back. You will be interested to know that when they first did this back in the 70s, mm. it was controversial. A lot of people didn't want it. You know what? Some of the things that we take for granted now is just part of the fabric of Philadelphia. It may have never happened. Started out as controversial. It may have never happened. Yeah. Um, Here's something we know is going to happen sooner than these lights going back up. The Super Bowl. Super Bowl. And if you're like me, Avi, and are more interested in the halftime performance with Usher and possibly the commercials, you may catch one commercial from Coors Light and hear a very familiar sound. Sing it louder. Put your chest. (laughs) You said put your chest in it. Look, that, friends, if you are not familiar, is Love Train. It's a song originally released in 1972 and sung by the OJs, but it was produced right here in Philadelphia by Philly's own Gamble and Huff. Yeah, yeah, Gamble and Huff, the super producer team. They created the sound of Philadelphia. And they were this song will be featured in a Coors Light commercial, which brings back the chill train. 
And the, this song is sort of the anthem for the Chill Train. And by yeah. the way, LL Cool J is also, he's the conductor of the Chill Train, by the way. <laughs> Good to know. We need that Chill Train to have a proper conductor. Exactly. You never know what it could happen. Work. It's really cool. Um, yeah, people will remember that Coors mm-hmm. Light used this song for years. In like the early 2000s, they used the Love Train. Bringing that money back in <laughs> Philly. Bringing it back. <laughs> you know, a song, it's really nice to have a song mm-hmm. that's about brotherhood and standing together and world unity being used to sell terrible beer. I just feel it warms my heart. And uh, by the way, if you are interested... <laughs> that was sarcasm, but please, please catch that that was sarcasm. By the way, you can actually watch Love Train, the Sound of Philadelphia live in concert on the Passport app. We actually played it on TV 12 not too long ago. So if you like that kind of stuff and you want to take a flashback, because some of the people who performed, you know, some of those songs mm-hmm. are no longer with us. So, I yeah. will say there's a real opening here <laughs> for Bud Light, Miller Light. You can use a song from the Philly Soul era to sell your beer too, because clearly it works. Uh-huh. I think Didn't I Blow Your Mind This Time by the Delphonics. I could sell mm. some Bud Light to that. I think you uh, could. And if I you heard don't you know me, it. If you don't know me by now, you yeah, Harold yeah. Melvin and the Blue Notes, mm-hmm. we could sell some Miller Light or some Bud with that. So yeah. other beer companies, look at what Coors is doing. Just think about it. Think, think about, about it. Open your mind. So we're going to get serious right now, Avi. On Tuesday... A Michigan jury found the mother of a high school shooter guilty of involuntary manslaughter for failing to stop her son from killing four of his classmates. This was the first time a parent in the United States has been convicted of these particular criminal charges over a mass shooting carried out by their child. This is naturally raising a lot of questions about responsible gun ownership, parental accountability for violent crimes committed by kids, and a potential ripple effect for future cases. Joining us now to begin our discussion is Echo Yanka. He is Thomas M. Cooley, professor of law at the University of Michigan. He's been closely following this case and the potential aftermath. Echo Yanka, welcome to Studio Two. Thank you for having me. So, Echo, we've all been taught that unless we conspired or otherwise participated in a crime, we usually cannot be held liable. I want you to talk about the facts of this particular case involving Ethan Ethan Crumbly. How is it different such that a jury found his mother, Jennifer Crumbly, guilty of involuntary manslaughter? Well, you started off at exactly the right place. There's a really deep legal principle that if somebody else takes an action, it severs the causal chain is how lawyers put it. That is, it's 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 on them. Right. That's what mm-hmm. we really mean. It's on them. Um, and that's true even, you know, we teach some classic cases with some pretty bad facts. Um, somebody is contemplating harming themselves and um, and you give them the gun, right? They ask to buy the gun. You say, I'll sell you the gun. They say, I can't buy it. You give them the gun. They kill themselves. You're typically not liable. Mm-hmm. Um, it's on them. You can be liable for other things, but not for their killing themselves. The thing is, as you can imagine, the way you test this in a law school class is, you come up with facts to really test the students' intuitions and see how much you can push and push and push. And this case is like that. I mm. mean, I, I I don't mean to make light of it at all, but if I had written this case up in a law school exam, the students would have said, you've gone too far, mm. right? Mm. So you've got this young man. He has uh, serious mental health issues. Um, 
In some places, he says he's seeing demons. Uh, he has hallucinations about what's going on in his house. The mother denies this. She says he was mostly joking. But there, um, there are writings in his journal about seeking um, therapy, how he's asked his parents for therapy, how they refuse to help him respond to this. Um, instead of getting this young man help, the parents buy him a pistol, a gun mm. for an Christmas gift, and they take him they take him to a shooting range. His dad takes him to a shooting range. Uh, the parents find out that he's researching ammunition online. And the response from the mom in a text message is, I don't care if you do this. Just don't get caught. Laugh out loud. Right. LOL. Mm. Um, and he goes on and on like this until that final awful day. Um, that day, Ethan Crumley is in school and he starts to draw pictures of guns and dead bodies on his math homework. And his teacher's, of course, disturbed by this, so takes him to the principal's office. The principal calls the two parents in. They have a conversation. Indeed, the principal even asked the parents to take him home. Um, now, the testimony conflicts. It's hard to know whether or not they refused or if everybody came to the agreement. It wasn't necessary. But what we do know is that the Crumleys left that school mm. without telling the school that he had a loaded handgun. And two hours later, Ethan Crumley shot and killed four students and wounded seven others. Mm. Um, that's how that day unfolded. As you laid it out there, Professor, an extraordinary chain of events. Is there one of those events in the chain that you think the jury might have found most convincing in making this leap that no jury has really ever made? Yeah, I mean... This is the kind of, you know, it's hard to read Drew's mind. This is the kind of case where there's so many different facts that are so damning and so heart wrenching. Indeed, the way the prosecution closed really points at this. The prosecution's point was the reason that Janet Crumley should be found guilty is because there are a million little things she could have done to stop this tragedy from unfolding. Right. That's the prosecution's argument that it's not that she was just neglectful, but that she caused these deaths. That's the big legal step. Right. Not that she is responsible just for leaving something dangerous around, but that she could have stopped these deaths and so is responsible. But if you want to zero in on just one fact, I think the most stunning one, at least when I talk to friends, uh, talk to other lawyers, and now actually the jury foreman ended up saying it um, uh, in, in the aftermath of this on, on a morning show, I think the most stunning fact for everybody is the moment where the parents walk out of school and don't inform the yeah. school that he had yeah. a weapon. Well, that is the voice of University of Michigan law professor Echo Yanka. We're going to continue our discussion with him about parental responsibility after a very short break. Stick with us. This is Studio 2 from WHYY in Philadelphia. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman-Arendt. If you're just joining us, we're continuing our conversation about mass shootings and accountability. 
in particular, parents' responsibility after kids commit violent crimes. On Tuesday, a Michigan jury found the mother of a high school shooter guilty of involuntary manslaughter for failing to stop her son from killing four of his classmates. With us now is Echo Yanka, law professor at the University of Michigan. Professor, welcome back to Studio Two. Thank you. And to our listeners, continue to send in your emails to studio2 at whyy.org. What do you think about holding parents responsible for violent crimes of minors? Is this a slippery slope? Do you agree with the Michigan jury? Call us live. Call us now. That number is 888 477 9499. Echo, I want to pick up and talk about this because I'm going back to law school right now and I'm thinking about the term reasonable man um, mm. or the the reasonableness of you being able to foresee the consequences of certain actions. And I, I want to see, is this case just extremely unique where there were so many opportunities for the parents here, specifically Jennifer Crumley, to foresee or predict that this could happen such that this case is unique or could this case really open the door for more um, prosecutions uh, in, in these types of cases? Well, you, you, your law school uh, treated you well. You have all the right questions. Um, you know, there are, I think, a couple questions in what you're asking, um, starting with the reasonable foreseeability. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that's strange is that, or not strange, but tracks uh, many people's moral intuitions and a legal principle um, but can can be put under pressure is that even when you can reasonably foresee somebody's actions, if it's their actions, you in some sense didn't cause them, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, I tease with my students and even my family about this. There are things you can do that reasonably will cause somebody to do. You know, we all know how to push the buttons of our brother and sister, for mm-hmm. example. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So my kids will do something and um, say, well, you know, your brother was going to get mad. And on the one hand, they did cause it. On the other hand, there's a part of us that thinks, no, he did it, right? And and so that intuition is buried in our law that, you know, if I if I do something to make you mad, it's still on you if you do it. That intuition is only broken when the person who causes the harm is irresponsible, literally irresponsible. So if I give a six-year-old a gun, as we saw in Virginia, um, uh, even that case was complicated. But if I gave a child a gun and they fired into a crowd, then I might be responsible. If I gave an insane person a gun and they fired in the crowd, because the law says those people aren't responsible at all. Mm. Um, but otherwise, we think even if you could foresee it, it's it's their action. Um, but you asked the second question, whether it'll open the floodgates. And I think that is the hardest question. I mean, as you say, this case was full of really, really gut-wrenching facts And so we might think it was a uniquely bad case leading to a uniquely bad conviction. But as you well know, prosecutors reason by analogy. And once this precedent is out in the world, Mm. some enterprising prosecutor will try to use it for the next case and the next, especially cases like these, these incredibly uh, community rending, um, you know, school shooting just is the kind of thing where a whole community cries out for justice and a prosecutor will be tempted to use these use these tools. Yeah, you referred in that answer to the case in Virginia. And for folks who don't remember, that was the case where a six-year-old brought a gun to school and shot a teacher, not fatally, but but wounded her quite badly. Um, and that resulted, I believe, in a two-year prison sentence for the mother. 
Um, there was also the case in Illinois mm-hmm. where uh, Robert Cremo Jr. committed a, a mass shooting with a gun that he purchased thanks to his father sponsoring his gun application. And the father, in that case, pled guilty to misdemeanors, yeah. I believe. Um, all of these cases, the common element is guns. Mm-hmm. Do you think in future cases that will have to be true? There will have to be gun violence at the center of it? Or do you think there's application here beyond the world of gun violence to other types of violence or even other types of crimes? Sure. So um, just really quickly on the six-year-old and the, the Illinois and the Virginia case, it should be noted that those cases are close but not identical yeah. right so the mother in the virginia case excuse me in the yeah in the virginia case pled guilty to um using drugs while in possession of a gun um and of course the cremo case is slightly different though probably the closest because he pled guilty so you nicely point out that in those cases though the parents were held guilty they were held guilty for sort of their sort of the virginia case is a case of her negligence while watching over a gun but the state did not make the more ambitious argument they did here. They did not argue, for example, that she caused the teacher to be shot. Right. Right. That's the big step mm. in this case. Uh, but to your core point, um, look, I think, again, really, really horrible case. And maybe uh, it, it will remain exceptional in every way. But it's hard for me to imagine why a prosecutor wouldn't think that there are analogous cases outside of our gun, outside of a gun situation. I mean, if you know your kid is struggling with drugs and alcohol and you know that he's stolen a car and gone for a joyride, um, you know, let's, you know, we, we have to face it that the world is often much rougher than we'd like. If, if a parent has drugs or alcohol in the house and their child then shoots up, gets in a car and intentionally harms somebody, um, I don't know why you wouldn't say that case is analogous. Yeah, if you are just joining us, uh, we are speaking with Echo Yanka, a law professor at University of Michigan. We're talking about parental responsibility in light of the Michigan ruling that Jennifer Crumbly is guilty of involuntary manslaughter for a mass shooting that her son carried out there. I also want to bring into the conversation Darisha Parker, a Pennsylvania state representative representing parts of North Philadelphia. She is a prime sponsor of House Bill 941. It's a measure which seeks to establish parental responsibility for a minor's actions committed with firearm here, firearms here in Pennsylvania. Rep. Parker, welcome to Studio Two. Thank you for having me and thank you for inviting me to this very intense um, and thought-provoking conversation. So what exactly would House Bill 941 do? Absolutely. And let's just take a step back. Um, Recently, we had a community meeting. And one of the things that was the topic, of course, was gun violence. And I actually said, well, what would you want? What would you want to see happen? And the first thing, you know what, we're tired of things happening and nobody is held responsible. So this bill would have the individual who is a parent or guardian be responsible for their firearm, what is in the house, especially if a person already has a criminal record within the fact that if a crime is committed. Because what is happening now in certain cases that a crime is committed and no one in the household, everyone acts like no one knows what's going on or even if it was their child. And in this type of case, we cannot, we can no longer have that happen. We have had to have a spot. We have to have 
adults responsible for the actions of the minors or not minors that are in their household. I'll bring in an email now from Dan who says uh, this case, and Dan's referring to the Michigan case, is obviously egregious. The parents are responsible, but I don't see any difference between parents who own a ton of guns and don't lock them up. Would this bill potentially lead to the conviction of parents or the civil liability of parents who don't lock guns? Well, that's interesting you said it because I have another bill that is, um, has been voted out of committee. It's basically regarding safe storage. That has been one of the most controversial bills. Um, I've received many emails, phone calls, text messages, social media posts from the NRA, from the Second Right Amendment, from Republican that are saying, here Rep. Parker goes again, coming after legal gun owners for something that they do. And if you talk to legal gun owners, they don't feel that something like this, that we should be forcing individuals to store their firearms and along with their ammunition. They feel like they should have the right. But what our study and data have showed is that a lot of these incidents and a lot of casualties have come and have come about to the sad part of death because a firearm was not safely stored. Mm -hmm. I, I got to ask you this, Rep. Parker. I mean, Republicans sure. and even some rural Democrats, they are very unlikely to support this bill. What's the current status of the bill? And could this Michigan case give you a better chance to move it forward? Yeah, I mean, Carrie, you have, a, you, you, have the, you have your finger on the pulse. And the whole thing about this is it's the Michigan does help. Does it help me have more conversation? Absolutely. Does it um, have more people that want to ha have more dialogue, more roundtables? Absolutely. Does that mean that this bill that has been voted out of committee will, um, you know, be voted out of the committee to come back on the floor? That right now is still up in the air. Um, we are right now in a heated election. And in order for these things to happen, we need a large, large longer range of individuals in the majority. So we need at least five, six, ten more people to be in the majority for that to happen. Before we let you go, uh, Representative Parker, I wanted to ask about some language in the bill. It mentions that the parents could be held liable sure. if they have reason to know that the minor, quote, has a propensity to commit unlawful violent acts. A lot of parents might see that and say, I'm not an oracle. I don't know what my child is capable of. And in fact, my sure. child keeps a lot of things from me. I mean, what would you say to someone who's pushing back along those lines? I mean, I think that's what parents, um, that's an easy answer for a parent to say that, you know, I don't know what happens or I don't know what goes on in my child's life when I'm not around them. And I can also say that my parents used to say that, but my parents didn't have social media. Um, when I was a little kid. And I think right now is not the time for parents to be their friends, that if a child is walking to your house, they go straight up the stairs, don't speak to you and close their door and immediately goes onto their cell phones and all of their electronic devices. Shame on you. They're in your house using your Wi-Fi, using all of the things that you're providing, paying a bill for, and they are not. It is time for parents to be responsible and to be nosy with their children. They need to be in not just their kids' lives, but the kids who they're hanging with lives as well. And that's the way you put an end to what we're talking about, senseless violence. And with that, I want to say thank you so much to Darisha Parker, Pennsylvania State Representative, representing parts of North Philadelphia. We appreciate you being on Studio 2 today. Thank you so much for having me and have a great day. And if you are just tuning in, we're talking about parental responsibility. Should parents be 
held criminally liable for the actions of their children and in particular cases where guns are involved. Weigh in. The number is 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at whyy.org. We want to bring back our guest, Echo Yanka, Thomas M. Cooley, professor of law at the University of Michigan. Do we still have you here, Echo? You do. That was a, that was really um, engaging. I was glad to listen in on the representative's work. Yeah. And what was your reaction there? I mean, this is a bill in Pennsylvania. And I know you don't have the full text in front of you, but the, but it's aiming toward this idea mm-hmm. of really focusing on parent responsibility when minors commit unlawful acts, violent acts. Um, do you think we could see legislation or more legislation like this around the country? I'm, I'm sure that we will. And, you know, look, one thing I want to commend is I think one of the reasons you get prosecutions pushing uh, against old legal principles is because so many prosecutors are frustrated citizens, too. And they think if the legislature isn't going to help, um, then I'm going to use the tools I have. So I'm glad to see the democratic process taking the problem seriously. The last thing I want to say is, you know, um, because of my job and because I spent all my time thinking about the, the the criminal law system, I tend to have a lot of questions and cautions. But yeah. I get the I, I get the representative's passion. I understand why people are driven. Look, these shootings, Oxford is an hour and 15 minutes away from me. Um, the shooting just over a year ago, just under a year ago at Michigan State University, you know, a rival school from mine where we're more used to making fun of each other. Yeah. Um, a, a place where I grew up, by the way, I've played soccer as a kid on every one of, you know, any patch of grass on that campus I played soccer on. I had to walk into school and talk to my students the day after shooting there. So yeah. I, I understand why we feel desperate to do something about it. Um, yeah. So I don't want my caution to be misread as being cavalier, but you know, the representative talks about parents who don't know, who aren't engaged. I'm also worried about the parents who do know and who are trying their best. There are a lot of parents who might know that their kid is involved in violent activities. And every day they are scolding, holding, hugging, punishing, praying. Um, And it's, you know, the Crumleys came across as indifferent parents, Mm -hmm. uh, deeply worrisome parents. Um, But I'm sure there are a lot of parents out there who think, what are we going to do when I do my best and it's still not enough? Am I at what point is my son's behavior or my daughter's behavior his? Yeah, I want to bring in a caller. We have Claire who wants to talk about mental health. Claire, you're on studio too. Hi. Yes, I am in no way, shape, or form uh, letting parents off the hook who don't take some responsibility. But having had several severely mentally ill relatives. Mm-hmm. I have learned how difficult it is to get them help when the healthcare system is awful when it comes to mental health. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I know that this young man, I believe, was declared mentally ill. And I'm not saying I am an expert in declaring his parents mentally ill, but if they couldn't get help for their mental health possible issues, how in the heck are they going to help their child? Mm-hmm. It's impossible to get mental health care in this country unless you're a multimillionaire because you have to pay cash. Yeah. It's it's just terrible. And Claire, thank you for that's that comment because I do want to that's a perfect follow-up to what you were saying Echo. I mean, there it seems to me if facts show that you were trying 
the outcome, if there were better facts for the Crumleys, for example, showing that they were trying, that they took him to the hospital, that they tried to to get him a therapist, that maybe the outcome would be different. Yes. Yeah. Um, look, I think once again, the the that there are so many terrible facts lead some people to say, and I get it. I don't know how I would have voted if I were in that jury box. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, mm-hmm. uh, there's a big part of my heart, just like everyone else who thinks their behavior was so outrageous, something has to be done. Um, and so that, a way of answering your question is we might think there are going to be lots of cases where we can distinguish from the worst, most negligent parents and a parent who's trying their best. Um, but I think we should also remember, as you well know, that our criminal justice system is actually not the spectacular trial that we see every now and then. It is something like 93 to 97% plea bargains. And so once you have a precedent like this, you're going to have cases where parents think they do have a legal defense, but a prosecutor is going to say to them, look, I'm offering you three years or five years in jail. If you don't take this plea bargain, I'm going to go to trial for 15 years in jail. And if that parent pleads out, it will lack the kind of democratic accountability and fellow citizens and attention guarding the lines that uh, a trial offers. Yeah, the threat is real. Um, We have a few questions. I would love to get to all of these if we can pretty quickly in the next five minutes, Professor. Mm -hmm. I want to start with an email from Sammy. What about adults being charged for other adults because they live in the Mm, same household? Um, Do we see any parallels there? Does that open the door for prosecution along that avenue? Yeah, I mean, that's going to be even harder. I think the fact that he was young wasn't explicitly the case, but it was certainly part of the case. Yeah. You you don't see adults being uh, non-accomplice adults being responsible with the exception of, again, it's often where we can't solve these social problems. You've seen some of this in uh, drug overdose cases yeah. where people, the law seeks to hold the seller responsible for the overdose of the user who presumably voluntarily used. So there are some weak analogies there. And then Drake asked via email, would a parent also be held liable for buying their kid a car and the kid then intentionally crashes it and kills someone? And and I expand Drake's question a bit because are there other sorts of crimes like bullying, for example? There's a bill pending here in Pennsylvania on that topic. How many other sort of areas could this this parental liability extend to? Yeah, I mean, that's my worry, right? I mean, I think for some of us, buying your kid a gun seems so extraordinary, but there's a huge amount of America where buying your kid a gun is a quite ordinary thing to do. Um, and so, too, the parent who maybe buys a kid who, as I've said, struggles with drugs and alcohol or maybe is taking a joyride or is irresponsible. You know, the other tough one is what if the parent thinks they're buying their kid a gun for legitimate reasons? Your child tells you, to use your example, I'm in danger in this neighborhood. Kids are trying to hurt me. I'm being bullied. Um, Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, you know, or maybe there's gang violence in your neighborhood and you legally buy your kid a gun for self-defense. They then turn around and rob a store and kill somebody. Um, Again, I am not trying to pretend that all cases are the same or that, you know, we can't draw any lines. But the life of the law is to take a precedent and argue by analogy. And lawyers should lawyers are always very conscious of that. And I want to bring in an email here from Hugo. The Crumblies are responsible for their kids' behavior, but what about school officials? Mm, Hugo yeah. says it seems like they have a lot of responsibility for children's behavior in school. What's their responsibility? And of course, in this case, it's well noted that school officials sort of flagged Ethan Crumbly's behavior, uh, but then he was ultimately allowed to stay in school that day. 
And, you know, Hugo's ultimate question there is what's their responsibility? Um, let's talk criminal, but let's also talk civil when we, when we yeah. address that question. No, it's a great question. And look, the way the prosecutor ended her closing was thoughtful in this way. She said, look, I'm not trying to argue that nobody else did anything wrong. I'm not trying to argue that the school did did its job perfectly. Um, so the prosecutor was trying to make space for the jurors to be able to say the school also screwed up. But really, it was the Crumleys. You know, I think for a lot of us, the fact that the Crumleys left without telling the school that he was armed just blows everything away. But I have a lot of friends. Um, I'm thinking of a particular friend of mine who's a mandatory reporter. Um, has worked in schools for years and years and years, and she is outraged. And I have I have uh, another friend of mine. His mom's a teacher. They're outraged that the school didn't look in the backpack and didn't check. Um, they think that was a violation, and that's surely going to come up when yeah. there's ultimately a lawsuit. And as we get ready to wrap up, we have about a minute, less than a minute left. I mean, the father, James Crumbly is um, up next. Um, any thoughts on what's going to happen given the outcome of his wife's trial? Yeah, obviously the people in the most pain are the parents who've lost four children mm-hmm. and the parents of seven other uh, desperately injured kids. But the only other people watching more closely were the was James Crumley's team. Um, this case was supposed to be tied together. They separated at the last minute. So presumably that team felt like... Um, there, both sides felt like there were facts more damning to the other. Um, but yesterday or Tuesday was a bad day for the James Crumley team. Yeah. And yeah. I even wonder if they'll, even in this late hour, um, I, they'll certainly probably move for a change of venue. But I wonder if they'll yeah. they'll even try to plea. Plea out, yeah. yeah. That's Echo Yanka, Thomas M. Cooley, professor of law at the University of Michigan. Echo, thank you so much for joining us today on Studio Two. Thank you for having me. New year, new music, rapper and songwriter. The Bull Bay is here with a roundup of some emerging local artists we should be keeping an eye on. Stick with us. Lots to come. Welcome back to Studio Two. I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Avi, could you use a little bit of a playlist refresh right now? Among other refreshes, yes. <laughs> well, 2024 is going to be an exciting year on the Philly music scene. So today, we decided to keep it local with our music recommendations. Yay! Our next guest came prepared with a roundup of artists from our region, from emerging talent to big stars. Amir Richardson, a.k.a. The Bull Bay, is a Philly rapper and songwriter and our favorite Studio 2 music expert. Amir, welcome back the hey. studio too it's so good to see you it's great to be seen it's great to see you guys too how are you we're good we're good no one ever asks how we are i know that's thank wonderful you, Amir. Look thank at you man. we gotta spread the so vibes aesthetic <laughs> let's start vibes you just said vibes mm-hmm. spread the vibes can we start with vibraphone let's this, do it this is an artist a vibraphonist named hudson river um and she's just jamming in this clip but she's going to be at chris's jazz cafe on sansom street in philly on february 15th one week from today Let's vibe a little to Hudson River. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. Okay. So We're I, vibing. Yes. Watching her play the vibraphone in her home studio in some pajama pants yeah. and like killing it mm-hmm. is the coolest thing on Instagram. Yeah. Who is Hudson River? And explain this vibraphone to people. I would say a new artist on the scene, uh, but it's deeply rooted in West Philadelphia and the sub, uh, surrounding suburb areas. So like Darby, Yaden, this kind of Southwest Philadelphia area. And yeah, the vibraphone. How do you uh, describe this? Some people might mistake it for the xylophone mm-hmm. um, I know I did and so watching these clips that that you talked about and watching these performances has educated me on what the vibraphone is the range of sounds and dynamics that it kind of carries and it's just an incredible listen and I encourage everyone to go to Chris's Jazz Cafe next week it's going to be an incredible show I think maybe I've seen Hudson River performing on the street maybe mm-hmm. at times mm-hmm. uh, is she out and about very much so. Philadelphia has an incredible active busking scene. Yeah. So you mm-hmm. will see celloists, vibraphonists, and, and, and many different instrumentalists all over the streets. The actual walking pavements you'll find these artists in. She's very active in, in, in performing outside. Yeah, making our lives better every day. Thank Love you. It. Yeah, and Philly's own, the one and only Black Thought, yeah. has a song on the new Color Purple soundtrack. Let's take a listen. He just fine, oh, we outside, he not tired, Joe, PSI, 3XI, he just died, might catch me next time, whoa, I'm a nation with no friends, I burn limitation at both ends, I'm the info smoke sense, the window with info broke in, lots of cotton went to pocket lint, lots of consequence and documents, lots of gotten bitch at my expense, I found a new argument for our defense, I was self-made to the help came. Did it myself, no one else came When I was in the rain on the L train Generational wealth came with my plan Being a man which I am The only thing that show you how rich I am Is how I stand, the ground on which I stand Song titled Working Never fails Never, He's such a lyricist <laughs> Never fails Unbelievable. What struck you about this track? Well, you know, I love the uh, the lyric about riding the L train. Yes. Certainly that's something that I do regularly, and <laughs> I'm sure we all do in, in, in the city of Philadelphia. Uh, and, and I really wanted to highlight that because, you know, I kind of call the, the last part of the year the holiday hurricane storm, and things kind of get lost in that yeah. shuffle and that hustle. And this was a song I was like, oh, this is way too good. Um, and it's connected to the soundtrack of Color Purple, mm-hmm. which is great. And anytime something major and, and impactful happens, I'm always looking for Philadelphia's fingerprint on it. So here was this big major release, and I'm like, Philadelphia has something to do with this. <laughs> and, and certainly enough, uh, Philadelphia's very own Black Thought offered an incredible verse to this song. And I saw the movie, and I think it's like a chain game scene where they're like, it's, it's like working. working. They're working. <laughs> and um, and it is a, like a hip hop song. And I was like, I did not know this was Black Thought. So now I got to watch the movie again, knowing that Philly has his fingerprints on the, the new color. It's program. always the case. That's mm-hmm. always the case. Yeah. What are your thoughts on sort of the track underneath what he's what he's saying? I mean, it's like uh, it feels it feels fresh, but it also feels like it's calling back to mm-hmm. something old, something traditional. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I liked that. I love the dynamics and that balance that you talked about because it, it, it does feel very fresh and contemporary. Um, but we all know that steady beat. Yeah. yeah. That hard hitting rhythm is something that kind of dates back to so many generations ago. People like singing while they're working and it, it's heavy. It's heavy and you feel it in your soul. So I love it. Wonderful. That's a great description. I like that. You're so good with with these sounds. Um, A name, another name that our region might be familiar with, Matthew Ship, from Delaware area, uh, avant-garde pianist, been around for a while. David Bowie was a big fan of his. He has some new music. Talk about 
I always take pride in not only Philadelphia, but the surrounding areas. And I feel like Delaware kind of gets left out of the conversation they sometimes. Do. Yeah. Cherry <laughs> tells me that all the time. It's, it's, a, it's a real thing. And they've offered and, and, and gave, given so much to the, the cultural tapestry um, from this region. So it's just perfect to highlight this person. And I talked about that hurricane, you know, uh, holiday hurricane shuffle that we all get lost in. I feel like this album got lost in all the sauce. Um, <laughs> but it's incredible. And it's a really good listen. This is the first track mm-hmm. off his most recent album called The Intrinsic Nature of Ship. Let's give it a listen. It's hard for me sometimes to know what to listen to or what to pick up on yeah. when it comes to instrumental music, especially avant-garde style mm-hmm. yeah. instrumental yeah. music. So how do you listen, Amir, and how do you f- sort of find the beauty in it, and, and, and how do you draw it out for someone like me, a layperson? Avi, I agree with you, and you're not as lay as you might think. <laughs> you know, music sometimes, especially the contemporary space that we live in, is very commercial. You know, yeah. um, but yeah. artists like this kind of pull us into the space of creativity, pure creativity, and so it's not so much formed in the same way that we know pop songs to be formed, um, but it's structured in all these different ways that we can still engage with, you know, and music is music at the end of the day. And so I always enjoy those pivots, those change of pace artists. And this and, and this is definitely one of those artists. Yeah. And you can feel every single one of those keys. It's like it does something to you physically when you when you hear him plucking them. So the tone and the timber. I know. I know. The tone so beautiful. and the timber. <laughs> and mm. and the, another artist we love with. Othniel, that's yes. like Othniel Chambers Sr. Yeah, Othniel. Othniel, yes. Love his music. I told Avi, I said, this is like gritty gospel. Ooh. Gritty gospel. And I said the same thing. That's a great <laughs> tag for it. It was like gritty it. gospel. Can we play this clip? I want you to take a listen to this. You're working on me. I can't deny it. I've been tripping. I haven't been my best self. I hear you talking to me. You see me trying, but I give in. Gotta be my best self. The song is called Best Self. Yes. Um, what do you love about this one, Amir? You know, it's kind of similar to the Black Thought song. That we I thought to. the same. It has that a steady little, beat. Like, yep. Yeah. Yeah. It has heart. It has a lot of heart. Um, and this is like your working man song. So it's not as, uh, it's not a throwback or a reachback. It's now. You know, it's it's someone talking about their day-to-day moments, their day-to-day, you know, struggles. And it's really, really heartfelt. I love this song so much. And Othniel Chambers is someone you can find strumming on his guitar, similarly to Hudson River, around the city, busking, oh, really? different things like that. Yeah, you know, all of these artists are very active in their own way. Um, and Othniel Chambers is no different. He is very active and very incredible. How do you find these people, Amir? Yes. I'm just you, stunned. You're, you're, by the way, follow. Gems. <laughs> I need to follow your playlist on Spotify. It is spot on. You know, I do my best to kind of uh, have an ongoing conversation with Philadelphia in general. 
Um, you guys know my work in dialogue and things like that. Yeah. But music is the same way. Music is another dialogue. Music is another form of engaging. And so I'm obsessed with music. And so I, I'm always writing something. I'm always talking to someone about creating something. And that just leads me into conversations with artists all around the city. And I, I love it. And as we wrap up, I got to shout out Tierra Wack. She's an honorable mention. We're not going to play her music today, but her song, My Power with Beyonce, is one of my favorite. But mm. she finally has her own new album release. It is called Worldwide Whack. It drops March 13th. What do you love about Tierra Wack? You know, not since the days of uh, Bahamadia, Eve, Miss Jade has Philadelphia had a, a woman MC that we can rally around mm-hmm. and she's stretching her creative limits. And when I what I what I mean by that is she stretches beyond the, the, the boundaries of rapping. Yep. She does so much and she's so creative. It's hard to describe uh, in a few seconds. So I, I'll tell the listening audience check to her out. check her out. And I believe if I'm if I'm not mistaken, I have to double check. But I think the album is March 15th. March 15th. 15th. OK. Yeah. Yeah. But and I can't I, wait. I, I listened quickly to I think it's called Shower Song. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you're spot on. The ambition is so front and center. You're like, this person is going for it. They're not content to just like make music be popular they're trying to leave a mark you know what i mean that's what i felt listening yeah and she's been building it building and building it and perfect time for a new album so yeah i can't wait and that friends is philly rapper and songwriter amir richardson aka the bull bay amir as always so great to have you here on studio too and we appreciate your recommendation hey thank y'all for having me i really appreciate it you'll I'm, be back you'll, right you'll, you'll please definitely be please back. thank you yes. <laughs> uh shout out to some of our commenters this hour dan drake hugo claire sammy everyone else who added their voice to the conversation really made it a richer conversation by the way, you can subscribe to Studio 2 wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review our producers. Debbie Builder, Paige Marie Bessler, Andreas Copes, Diana Martinez is our engineer. WHYY's audio general manager is Joan Isabella from Studio 2. At WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Avi Wolfman. And I'm Cherry Gregg. We will see you next week. But thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. <laughs>